Well, my name's Eric Barton, and I get to pastor the downtown campus here of Bethel Bible Church, and I want to start off with a little bit of a history lesson. Once upon a time, in a land far, far away, there was a man named Howard Carter. It's been about 100 years, but Howard Carter was a British man who was actually an artist. He was hired to go to the nation of Egypt to be a part of some archaeological digs. And his initial role, Howard Carter's, was to just be an artist, just to sketch the things that were found in the various digs that were happening all across Egypt. But he stayed, and he loved it. His father had been a trained artist in England, and he himself was a trained artist. And so he'd gotten hired on. At the age of 17, he leaves England, goes to Egypt, and he begins sketching. At some point, they found a new place to begin exploration and archaeology, what is now called the Valley of the Kings. Here's a picture of the Valley of the Kings. It didn't look anything like that in those days. It was just barren, dry, arid uh, hills in the desert. And they began to dig, and they began to dig. And there was a wealthy uh, aristocrat in England named Lord Carnarvon. And he had a hunch about where there might be an opportunity to find some unmolested graves, some tombs from antiquity that might still be intact because most of those things in Egypt had already been um, excavated by tomb robbers. And so Howard Carter, for season after season after season, he dug there in the Valley of the Kings. And finally, Lord Carnarvon grew impatient. He said, listen, I've had it. You're out of money. You're out of time. You've got one more season, and then I'm cutting you off. You'll be disgraced. You'll be uh, completely broke. So you've got one more season or else. So in November of 1922, just about 100 years ago, a young boy was literally just moving his stick around in the sand, and he moved some sand, and he found what seemed to be a stair. And he called Mr. Carter over, and he kicked the sand away, and then sure enough, there was a staircase. And they continued to dig and found that there was a wall at the bottom of the staircase. They went in, and they began to see some interesting things. And finally, in February of 1923, just about 100 years ago, they were able to discern and detect that they had found the unmolested tomb of King Tutankhamun. We say Tutankhamun because we like Steve Martin music videos. It's King Tutankhamun. And they found his tomb, and it had never been detected before, and it was completely intact. And so they opened it up on February 1923, and he stuck his head in. And it was pitch black. He couldn't see a thing at all. It was completely dark in there. And so he called for a torch, not an actual flashlight, an actual torch. Can you just imagine? And he stuck that torch through the hole in the wall, and he stuck his head in, and he just gasped, and he was silent. And of course, his, his workers that were with him just assumed that he'd been bitten on the face by a snake or something. He just stood there and finally one of them said, do you see something? What do you see? What do you see? And now famously, all he said was, yes, things, wonderful things. Can you imagine after all the pressure, all the buildup, all the anxiety, all of the the threat of failure, of embarrassment, of being a complete laughingstock. He finally sees these wonderful things. And this morning, it's a good transition because I want to talk about things. In fact, I want to talk about wonderful things. In fact, it's actually the title, unusually, of the sermon. It's simply called Things. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and it is chock full of things. Because like Howard Carter 
was searching for wonderful things, the basic hardwired human reality is that every human being ever is searching for the things that will make their life and the lives of those they love flourish and blossom. We're all looking for wonderful things, or at least that wonderful thing. In fact, our Bible is full of these kinds of things for our consideration. And one of the Apostle Paul's other letters puts it like this. This is Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. In Philippians chapter 4, where Paul's writing to the church at Philippi, which is in Macedonia, which is where he had come from before he goes to Corinth in Acts 18, he writes to that little church and he says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And so that's actually our big idea for this morning. Think about these things, these wonderful things. But in order for you to do that, you have to know what these wonderful things are. So we're going to talk about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to invite you to turn there. And as you're turning there, just to remind you, we've been in this little series on 1 Corinthians for a few weeks now. I want to remind you that Paul had been on his second missionary journey. He comes into Corinth on fumes. His first missionary journey began with a triumphal entry on the island of Cyprus. He converts Sergius Paulus, the Roman proconsul. He casts down a magician. He's planting churches. Yeah, he's getting stoned every now and then. No, not like that. They're throwing rocks at him. Things are suddenly taking a turn every now and then. But generally speaking, he's having great impact. He's having great influence. The churches are exploding all around what is today Turkey. He gets called over to Europe, Western civilization. Those people as well are looking for wonderful things. They're looking for the answers to make life tick. By the time he comes into Corinth in Acts chapter 18, he's totally out of gas. He's exhausted. He's afraid. He finishes up his second missionary journey, goes home. He reloads for his third missionary journey, goes through Galatia again, sits in Ephesus where he's there for three years. While he's there, he gets a report about the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth is about four years old by this point, and he writes them a letter. We don't have that one. They respond. It's not a good response. He writes them a second letter. That's 1 Corinthians. And so here we have the Apostle Paul sitting in Ephesus, writing to a church in Corinth that's about four years old, in Western civilization, in our context, society, and culture. And I'm going to read all of chapter 2, and then we'll walk back through it very briefly, try to unpack it, and then we'll see how we can apply it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, 
even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this, these things, in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are fully or they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Ah, but we have the mind of Christ. This is God's word. I want to remind you that the Apostle Paul is sitting in Ephesus where he writes to the church at Corinth. The book of Ephesians is really more about the church universal. The book of 1 Corinthians is really about the church local, about how does an individual church conduct itself? What is the big fancy word for that? The ecclesiology of a small church. Now, it doesn't happen always this way, but as we're looking at the ecclesiology of a church, we get to have a nice continuation from the previous week's passage, the end of chapter one, right into this week's passage. We start off here again, 1 Corinthians chapter two, Verse 1, Paul says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Paul has just been talking about in the end of chapter 1, I just came to you preaching Christ crucified. Now, I want you to imagine, because sometimes we hear those kinds of expressions or words in church and they lose some of their punch because they're over-familiar to us. Paul says, I came to Corinth, a city of 250,000 citizens and another 400,000 slaves, very metropolitan, very cosmopolitan, where all trade in the Roman Empire goes east, west, north, south through Corinth. And I came telling you of the most wonderful thing. Now, I want you to just imagine showing up at a brand new metroplex and telling the citizens of that highly educated and intellectual city that the singular secret to life and all its abundance was found on an instrument of death on the outskirts of a rebel city called Jerusalem. That's ludicrous. Here they all are searching for how to make life work and all of their intellect, all of their philosophy, all of their wisdom, all of their rhetoric, all of their culture, society, economy and education. And Paul goes, actually, now it's, it's on a dusty hill just outside the gates of this dusty little city that's really in rebellion against the empire and it looks like that. And to talk about the cross, to talk about crucifixion was absolutely forbidden in that culture, in that day, in that age. It was vulgar. It was disgusting. It would be like talking about how you saw something dead being eaten by something disgusting. Like, you don't talk about that. What are you doing? And culturally, to talk about the cross. And yet Paul says, oh, it is the most wonderful thing. I know you've got all these different things that you're pursuing, all these different avenues that you are traveling, but the most wonderful thing is actually at this very specific geography in Israel on the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Everybody's looking for a life that works. Turns out it's happened. God sent his sendable self, the Messiah, to become sin and death so that we could become the righteousness of God. He'll write that in his fourth letter to the church at Corinth. We call that 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So 
This passage is really emphasizing this thing so that the local church can have zero doubt or confusion about how they are to operate. He says he didn't come proclaiming this wonderful thing in lofty speech. This testimony, your translation might say testimony, it might say mystery. The term is actually mysterion. In Greece at that time, there were a whole lot of people that were saying, hey, 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 everyone's looking for the answers to life. I've got the answer. I know the truth. I have started my own mysterion. It was an actual technical term. It was a new sect or a religion that I would start and I would go around telling everybody with lofty speech and rhetoric and oracle as a sophist was the official title. And I would tell everyone, I have the answer. Press hard, third copies, yours, cash, credit card, or even Venmo. Whatever it takes, I have the answer. And Paul says, no, 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 no. I didn't come to you like that. Paul didn't come setting up a secret society. He didn't kind of come and set something up for the super well-heeled or the varsity or the attractive or the appealing or the intelligent. Aren't you glad? I mean, woo. No, he says, but I have the wonderful thing. These sophists had a style, and it didn't really matter at all what you said if you were one of these orators, these rhetoricians, if you were a sophist. It didn't matter what you said. The people sat in judgment of how your performance was. And Paul says, absolutely not. I didn't come to try to win your favor. I just came to talk about a cross that was planted on the outskirts of Jerusalem and a man who was God who died, shamed, beaten, naked, but he died in our place. That's all I was doing. Didn't come to try to woo you or wow you with my performance. Now, let me be very cautious and clear because at the same time, the presentation does matter. The founder of a ministry that I call, that I love a lot called Young Life, a guy named Jim Rayburn, used to say the greatest sin is to bore someone with the gospel. And so there's a balance there. It's, there's art and there's science. 1700s preacher here in America, Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest preachers, theologians, minds, thinkers ever, certainly in our nation, was famous for, he would write out his sermons with a quill, pen, and ink, and he would write it out, manuscript, and then he would bury his head in the pulpit, and he would on purpose speak in monotone so that absolutely no one could think for a moment that it was power of his words and his people would drop their resting heart rates to about 12. <laughs> they, but he was an incredible writer, not so much the speaker. So there is an art and a science. We do want to be engaging. We do want this to, to connect with people. And yet, the thing is always the thing. The instrument of execution of the God-man on the outskirts of Jerusalem, that's the most wonderful thing there is. The local church was only about four years old there in Corinth, and it was already getting contaminated by trying to pair the norms of their world with what had been laid up by the teaching of the apostles. The church, as we said, is the society of grace, and that's different than the world. This had been a consistent and a persistent problem for Paul to encounter all throughout all the different churches that he planted. In his very first letter that he ever writes, it's the book of Galatians. And in Galatians, very early on, <clears throat> He writes this, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Since that was true across the board then, we have to assume that there, those two things are always uh, going to be in 
impacting us as a church as well, that we're gonna be influenced and impacted by our surroundings instead of vice versa. And so he continues here, verse two. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I had all kinds of other opportunities to say and do a whole bunch of other stuff, but I just want to point you to the most wonderful thing, the cross of Christ. Verse three. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. This is how we know that when Paul comes into Corinth, he's not just tired. He's completely exhausted. He is afraid. When he says much trembling, that's the same kind of language that you would hear from Isaiah in chapter six, where he stands before the throne of God himself and he is just coming apart at the molecular level. That's what Paul is experiencing when he comes into Corinth. He's totally beaten. He's afraid for his life. And this is how I came in. And all I could muster was the most wonderful thing, the cross of Christ. And my speech, verse four, I love this. I love verse four so much. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. Little church, about four years old, you've probably already begun to think that maybe this is just some human institution, some society, some club, some gathering. No, let me remind you that you are a church and this is the Spirit's working. This is the Spirit's power, not merely a human institution. This is where the Holy Spirit of God, the third member of the Godhead Trinity, this is where he dispenses wisdom and moves and power that comes from God himself. This is where human hearts and souls are transformed, even if we don't necessarily feel it. So that they then, and we now, don't trust in or rely on worldly ways and then expect for something massive and mysterious to happen. No, we trust that the Holy Spirit of God is going to do his work in the power of the Holy Spirit, even though we are a Bible church. I've heard this said before. Oh, you're a Bible church. You believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. Well, that's true, but we do believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who inspires our scriptures. And Paul's going to get into that right now. Verse five, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I don't really feel anything happening. So I'm going to start employing things from the outside world to see if I can feel it, notice it, discern it, detect it. Paul says, no, 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 no. Stick with what you know. Nothing new under the sun. The church, the local church is the place of the presence of the very spirit of God who indwells every believer. Ergo, the people that you're sitting around, they literally are little temples, little domains, little dwellings, little tabernacles of the presence of God. And so the space between shoulders is actually holy ground. And if we thought of one another that way, that would change a great many things. Well, he continues on here in verse six. It says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. There are some that were mature in Corinth. We'll find their names when we finally get to chapter 16, long about April of 2024, all right? There were some that were mature. Doesn't mean they were completely glorified or fully, fully, fully uh, sinless. Absolutely not. But they were growing. They had discerned and detected those wonderful things of God and they were taking them in. They were alive. They were illumined. They were awakened to the things of God. 
Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of the age of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Now, when he says they are going to pass away, that doesn't mean just physically die. That term always has the idea of fade away into decay. They just cease to be. There's an old expression that says, be careful what you wed yourself to in one generation because by the next, you'll be a widow. Whatever the, the vibe, the, the thing du jour is in the church, be careful. Within a generation, they won't even remember what you were talking about. That's why I love that we do old songs and we really synthesize old school theology as we modernize our worship. Our theology informs our doxology. Our doxology informs our theology and on and on it goes. He says, no, no, no. The stuff that this world pumps at us is going to pass away and fade into decay. Verse seven, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. And he's doing a little clever thing here. Oh, you want wisdom? We've got it. And we dispense it freely. You don't have to have a password. You don't even have to have a zip jacket with snaps on the shoulders. No, 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 no. We dispense it openly, freely. It's an open secret, Paul says. Hey, I love this verse. He says, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom. The, 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 the word secret there. In Greek, it's kryptos. It's where we get our word for crypt. That's right. The gospel is tales from the crypt. You heard it here first. No, not really. Yeah, I can't. Like, why, why is it? Trust me. Don't, go, don't Google that. It's a hidden thing. A crypt is where you can't normally walk by and peer in. It's hidden. It's dark. But we proclaim it openly. It is an open secret. We proclaim. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, the Sophia, the, the knowledge, the perspective of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. This is not God's plan B. God's not reacting and responding. In the mind of God, before the foundations of the earth, the Christ was crucified. Now that's hard for us to fathom, but when you get that, when you glean that, it's glorious. This has always been a part of God's plan. And Paul says, we impart that, we declare that openly. And the spirit of God who is active and present in illumining his word enlivens your soul to receive that like he's fertilizing your mind to receive for our glory. When you hear that expression, when it's for the people's glory, it always has the idea in mind of the crucifixion of Messiah so that the people of God can experience his presence and his peace and his purpose forever. This was in the mind of God from eternity past. It's not like Adam and Eve took a bite and God went, oh no, now what are we, ah, I'm gonna need someone to go down there and the spirit and the father took a step back. It's not how it happened. It was in God's mind forever. And Paul's point is you and I and them there and then would never, ever, ever figure that out on their own. We said it last week, truth is revealed, not discovered. You would never just get there. And so Paul says, we proclaim. It's an open secret, but we declare it. And the spirit enlivens and awakens. And it's a beautiful thing. Verse eight, none of the rulers of this age understood this. Now that should be translated. None of the rulers of this age understood these things. Now you're gonna hear this word again and again, the things, the things, the things, the things. The translators finally go, there's too many usage of the word things here. Oh no, there's a point there. This is the braille that pops off the page. When you see a word occur that many times, you go, hmm, I feel like there's a theme here. Even I can detect that pattern. The things, he says in verse eight, 
None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Remember, the church is God's idea. This is what God was doing. And the rulers of this age, sometimes when Paul says the term rulers, it has to do with the angelic realm, not this time. He's talking about the powers that be at just the right time. Galatians 4.4 says, for just the right season and time, the rulers of the age. And what he means is both Gentile and Jew. The Roman Empire and the high priests of Israel. I want you to think about this. In one sense, the greatest government that's ever been and the highest religion that's ever existed conspired together to kill the creator of the cosmos. Now, that's incredible. Paul says, yeah, they didn't get it because you don't just figure this out. You don't just get this. The Spirit of God has to turn on the lights. The Spirit of God has to raise the blinds. And by the way, if I may, praise God that the rulers of that age did what they did. That's what Peter preaches in the book of Acts. You murdered the author of life, which was God's plan. Otherwise, what hope would we have had? We would not have known these wonderful things. We would not have had access to. But in the mind of God, in eternity past, he purposed that this should be the wonderful thing that makes life work. Well, verse nine, let me pick up speed here. Verse nine, but as it is written... And then he's going to quote, because Paul just loves to quote from Isaiah. He's going to quote from Isaiah 64, 4. And the Hebrew that Paul quotes from is a little bit Yoda-like. Literally, Isaiah 64, 4 that Paul refers to here would say this. Things that no eye has seen, things nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. That expression, for those who love him, just is a simple way of saying God's people. These things... No one could figure out on their own. They didn't have the physical faculties to figure it out. The Spirit of God had to turn on the lights. It might just seem, Paul says, like black words on a white page. Some of you have Bibles with red letters. That's fine too. But it's all red letters. Every bit of it is God-breathed. We forget sometimes this is the very word of God, that the Spirit of God inspired human authors from God through the Spirit to the apostles, to the Scriptures, to the Christian, illumined and enlivened and amplified by the moving power and wisdom of the Spirit of God. No, we don't defer from acknowledging the Spirit, but you know who doesn't really usually want to talk about the Spirit? Not just Bible church pastors. No, I totally am down. It's the Spirit himself. is always deferring. He's always demurring. He's always deflecting. Look what God did. Look what the Son did. Look what the Father did. Look what the Son did. And so we love the Spirit because he's always pushing us to the Father and to the Son. Deuteronomy 29, 29, one of my favorite verses, Moses writing to the children of Israel. He said, the secret things belong to God. There are some things that the Spirit has not revealed. We're never going to know all that God knows. But, he goes on, the revealed things belong to us and to our children forever. The Spirit reveals the mind of God. How? By illumining our hearts, our minds, to understand what he has inspired in the writing of the Scripture through the apostles. This is wisdom. This is a wonderful thing. This is the thing that makes life work. These things, verse 10 says, God has revealed to us, and he's talking about the apostolic company then, and then ultimately now to us, since we have the completed canon of scripture, these things, these wonderful things, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. 
He is the agency of inspiration. He's active. He's not the force. He's not an idea. He's a person. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. The Spirit is God, and so he is always excavating and exegeting the Godhead and revealing that to us. Verse 11, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. This is one of those very central, central passages where we understand that Paul was Trinitarian. Even though he never uses that word, that the spirit himself is God and he's always searching the things of God and transmitting and communicating to us the things of God. And that is the only way we would ever know the things of God. In his fourth letter to the people at Corinth, what we call 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, he says, the God of this age, Satan is not a God, but it's an expression. The God of this age has blinded people so that they cannot see and they cannot raise the blinds, but the Spirit of God does so. That's an amazing truth we would be well to remember. Verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. What's going on here? Well, Paul's addressing this little church in Corinth that's about four years old, and it's made up probably about 50-50 of both Jew and Gentile. And I love the fact that Paul sort of in one verse sort of tackles denominationalism, if you will. There were a group of the people in the church that came from a Jewish background. And these people kept saying, we want power. We want a sign. We want power. We want a sign. You might say, and I don't mean this derogatorily at all, but you might say in our day and age, there are people who kind of come from a little bit more of a low church trajectory and they want to feel the burn. They want to have something really exciting, really massive. They want the music to swell just so, hit the bridge, cry in the chorus, and then here we go. That's the, that was sort of how the Jewish people of the church of Corinth were. They wanted to see it, feel it, really feel the boom. And then you had the Greeks that were the more reserved, they were the more intellectual, academic. They wanted to have a high church sort of theoretical and intellectual argument. They didn't want to feel the burn. They just wanted to be affirmed and proven that they were right in what they already thought. And Paul says, no, actually, we just received the Spirit, and the Spirit's going to do what the Spirit's going to do because he comes from God himself, and that's what we are openly declaring. It's an open secret. So again, verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand, that we might come to know, that we might come to think his thoughts after him and things that are freely given us by God, these wonderful things. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit. It is the spirit that is moving even now. As you're hearing me ramble and prattle on and precipitate all over these first few rows, sorry about that. It is the Spirit of God that is inhabiting the teaching of the Word of God among the people of God, and there are things being taught you that I have no idea. But I know this, they never conflict with God's Word. I will hear people come up after church and go, that thing that you said about the stuff, and I'm like, what me? I don't know what you were listening to on an AirPod. It wasn't me. But God is communicating He's literally communicating to you and to me as we sit under the prophetic utterance of God's word. He is communicating. He is conveying his truth to us if we will but have eyes to see and ears to hear. We impart this in not in 
but uh, not in, taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. We forget sometimes because we're Greek, we're Western. We tend to operate in the material mostly, but the spiritual person walks around and recognizes that everything is spiritual. You are both. You are spiritual, you are physical. You are material, you are immaterial. You are both. And we would do well to remember that about ourselves, about the people that we encounter. Now, verse 14, a central verse. The natural person, the word here is psukikos. It's the one who is not spiritual. It doesn't mean that they don't actually have a spirit. It means that that spirit is not awakened. It's in the dark. It's not enlivened. It's not functioning. They operate solely materially. Now, that's terrifying. That's separation between body and spirit, and yet walking around. Fully functional, highly animated, but spiritually dead. Remember, death in Scripture is not the cessation of, ex- of, of life. It's not extinction. It is separation. The, spiritual, or the, sorry, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. It's not even a moral word. The word accept here is not like he's angrily rejecting. He's saying he, he can't even receive it. He doesn't even have a radio, much less it's tuned to the wrong frequency. He can't receive it. It's like trying to explain to a blind person who has been blind since birth the intricacies of a Rembrandt. They just can't get it. It's trying to explain to somebody who has been deaf from birth the intricacies of a Mozart symphony. You just, you just can't. They, they don't have the capacity to comprehend until the Spirit of God turns on the lights, raises the blinds. And how does the Spirit of God do that? Most normatively, not every single time, most normatively, Romans 10 says, through the preaching of the gospel based on the scripture, which is inspired by the Spirit of God. That's most normatively how it happens. Are there exceptions to that one person, Asaph in Pakistan, who was hit by a horse cart? Yeah, I got it. That's not how it happened to me. I trusted a Christian before I trusted Christ, and that's often how it goes. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned, and his spirit is in stasis. It's in hibernation. It's in cryojourney. 15, the spiritual person, however, judges. I don't love the word judges here. It's not like they make a a condemnation. It's to stand next to and appraise side by side. Anacrino, you stand next to and you make evaluations. Everything that you encounter, everything that you experience, you are visualizing, you are spiritualizing through a spirit's lens. What's really going on here? That person behind me in the supermarket that's acting that way and saying those things, what's really going on here? Now, that's an important way that the child of God who has received this wonderful thing, these things, that's how they are to operate. The spiritual person judges all things, makes spirit discerning evaluations of all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Now, that's confused people for a long time. What Paul is saying is, listen, when he, has, when he says by no one, he has in mind specifically the unregenerate, unredeemed, unillumined world who might look at you and your theology and your doctrine and your faith and your confession as foolishness. They don't get to appraise you because they have no capacity to understand what you're talking about. It's like a hamster critiquing my algebra. Figure it out. It's like a hamster critiquing my algebra. They have no concept, no category for it. They don't get to do that. In the same way, an unredeemed, unillumined person can't know these wonderful things. There is no torch in the crypt for them to see the glowing gold of glory. They cannot see it. 
Verse 16, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? This is another reference to bracket and book in the section from Isaiah chapter 40. Who is gonna tell God anything? And then Paul's gonna use one of his favorite expressions to talk about conversion, salvation. But we have the mind of Christ. No, that doesn't mean we have Jesus's brain. It means we are indwelled by the Spirit. We are in Christ, and Christ is in the Father. We now have the capacity to think God's thoughts after him because the light has come on. The torch is in the crypt. We see things, wonderful things, but it's even more than that. Every time Paul talks about the mind of Christ, it is always in reference to how we perceive others. You remember how this book starts? I hear that there is disunity and factions among you, isms and schisms. That's because you are beginning to key on the world's wisdom. I invite you to recenter, refocus on the wonderful things of God and have the mind of Christ. You will think less of yourself. You will humble yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross, because that's how Jesus operated. That's how Jesus was. The unredeemed, unregenerate, unillumined world They can talk a good game for a time, but it cannot, does not, will not scale. We have these wonderful things. So our big idea, think on these things. Since we have these wonderful things, why in the world would we try to port in all these less than things from the outside world? So I want to give three very quick principles on this just to kind of help us apply it, to take it with us. As we think about these things, I've said before, our thinking matters to God. The stuff that happens between our ears has spiritual mass. It matters to God. So bearing that, we are to think about these things. First point goes like this. It is arrogance to approach God's word apart from God's spirit. I know I'm pastoring a Bible church and I'm not supposed to say things about the spirit. Don't matter, don't care. I recognize that that might come across a little starkly and abruptly, but that's only because I softened it greatly. (laughs) It's a really big deal. It is arrogance to approach God's word apart from God's spirit. For the last, I don't know, 120 years or so, the evangelical church movement, of which I'm a part and so very, very grateful for, has hammered on congregants with guilt and shame that you need to read your Bible every day no matter what. And I certainly affirm that soaking up God's word is a wonderful and crucial mark of a disciple of Christ. However, simply opening some scripture and skimming over it as though it was some spell or incantation from a Harry Potter book is an adventure in missing the point. The point of scripture is to know God, him, a person, three persons actually existing eternally and there is one God. So if we go to scripture outside of being in right relationship with God, not in fellowship, then we shouldn't be surprised when it becomes mechanical and mindless and we dread it and we don't want it. Because the problem is not with God, is that we've got a blockage, there's a grieving, there's a quenching. We've, 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 We've stopped up the flow of the spirit with unconfessed sin or with anger or with apathy or with assault or whatever it might be. And so we humbly cast ourselves and say, God, you know me. I'm the kind of guy that, not just that I did the thing, I am the kind of guy that does that in thought, word, and deed, in multiple languages. Now, would you remove all of that and would you throw it violently at the cross of my Christ and apply it to his innocent, naked body so that I can hear from you? And then you pour over a passage and when the God of the cosmos speaks to you, 
You will not dread. It will not be a mechanical exercise that you have. You'll knock over a toddler to get to your Bible. Not advocating that. I'm just saying. When you and I do that, we discover these wonderful things. Can't you just imagine Howard Carter backs away from the tomb? And can't you just see him going like, <laughs> and he puts it right back in and he looks. And he just goes, I got to see more. I got to see it again. That's how we are invited to commune with God by the Spirit, in His Word, as His people. Think about these things. Number two, we are wonderful things. Did you know that? We are wonderful things. We talk about this from time to time downtown, but perhaps not enough such that it actually makes a practical impact on our day-to-day walking around lives. But this text today is yet another declaration that we are from the future. We've been saved at some point because of what Christ accomplished in the past. He stretched the border and the boundary of the coming kingdom back into our context, and he pinned it with the cross. And those who are his, those who love him, are previews of a coming attraction. Remember, in the Jewish mind, there are essentially two ages There is the age now that stinks. There is pain. There is suffering. There is grief. There is scarcity. There is fear. There is suffering and there's death. Oh, but there's the age to come. And what the gospels, what Paul is telling us over and over again, don't you see this wonderful thing? These things mean that age has already broken through. Not with a national boundary, not with a military, but that age has already broken through. Christ brought it, and he has inaugurated, instigated, and initiated his kingdom in human hearts. Why would you try to live according to the old age? You are a wonderful thing. Don't believe me? If the Apostle Paul gets to quote Isaiah, I'm going to quote Isaiah too. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. Watch this. The prophet Isaiah, speaking on behalf of God, God says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. (laughs) It's talking about the new age, the coming age of peace, of love, of prosperity, of of bounty. And then about seven centuries later, the apostle Paul comes along and goes, "Oh, Oh, the mystery of the church, the mysterion of the church. I didn't see it. He says, Isaiah 65, 17, Yahtzee. That's not in the text. Yahtzee. It's already begun. And he'll write in his fourth letter to the church at Corinth, what we call 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Watch what he does. Therefore, if anyone, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You know what Paul just said? The new heaven and the new earth that Isaiah was looking forward to, it's you. It's you. It's him. It's him. And so how do we perceive ourselves? How do we perceive one another? My God, my God, we are the new heaven and the new earth already and not yet because of what the Spirit is doing in his people, illumining the wisdom of God in power through his word. We are wonderful things. We are to be spiritual people in a material context, to view one another and have these walking around glimpses, thinking about these things. By the way, part of our privilege as kingdom emissaries is to herald his return. And so, third point, evangelism begins with prayer. 
You may have the ABCs and the four spiritual laws and the Roman road and Dr. Seuss and everything else memorized until the Spirit of God raises the blinds, turns on the light, inserts the torch. You're using human wisdom and logic and rhetoric and you're speaking to a hamster trying to explain algebra. God love them. And so you pray and you pray. But I don't have time for all that. You've got time. You serve a sovereign God. You pray, my God, my God, would you do for them what you have done for me? My God, my God, would you do for them what you have done for me? And perhaps it should please our Lord. I personally believe that it does. But if we just hammer people with the pepper mill of apologetics about the head, neck, and face, and then we're surprised when they don't love our Jesus like we do, we pray for them. We pray. I've got family members I've been praying for for decades. I'm not saying this is easy. It's grievous. But we pray that God would do for them what he has done for us so that they too will think and find these wonderful things and so that they too will become wonderful things. And we think about these things. See, it's all pointing to Christ, the God-man crucified, Jesus, the wisdom and the power of God. It's not a pathway or a program or a policy or procedure. It is a person the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians says he is the sum of all wisdom and Revelation says he is the almighty, the pantocrator. And so the point of this passage for each of practically is to take the counsel of the Apostle Paul and even more recently the hymnist, Helen Lemmel, who put it this way. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace, things. Look to the cross. Look what our Christ accomplished there. God's things are infinitely superior to the things of this world. Think about these things. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you've done in Christ, to redeem us to yourself and to one another. That's a pretty great thing. So, Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, who the blinds are still down, the lights are not on, that by your Spirit you will move irresistibly. Turn on the lights. Raise the blinds. That they would be persuaded. The most wonderful thing exists on a hillside outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, and that you've done it by sending your own Son to become the sin, suffering, and, and death of those who are, you, are yours that they would believe, that they would step out of death into life, out of darkness into light, and they would talk with someone about that. They can move forward in their growing relationship with your son, Jesus, whether me or an elder or a pastor or a friend or a family member, whomever. But may salvation come to this house. And for the rest of us, Father, we're so gripped in news stories and media and all kinds of other ideas and notions out there. Would you fix our eyes on Jesus and to grasp and lay hold of these most wonderful things that we would be agents and emissaries of your kingdom that in a sense has already come. We pray these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.